All right, first a disclaimer. If you're listening to this part of the co-main event podcast first, you already fucked up. This is part Way to two go, loser. of two of the co-main event podcast discussing, discussing UFC 200. If you haven't heard the introduction period of the show in the first two rounds, you're going to want to go back to wherever you found this and listen to that first because uh, you're jumping in right in the middle of round three here. What are you even thinking? Where we're going to discuss Brock Lesnar. I don't know. Maybe you want to hear that first since you weren't thinking. I think in the wake of John Jones's removal from this card and the, and the reshuffling that went down, it sure felt like the return of Brock Lesnar was the biggest pre-fight storyline headed into this event. Uh, and the fight played out Lesnar-ish, I guess you would say. He ended up getting a unanimous decision victory over Mark Hunt, which is in itself a remarkable accomplishment since Brock Lesnar returns after more than four years away, steps into the cage cold, uh, and beats a top 10 UFC heavyweight. So you got to give him his props for that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we will talk about the actual performance during this round. Ben, what was your initial takeaway from seeing the big man come back uh, and pick up not exactly right where he left off, but still looking like uh, he can compete in there. You know, one of the things that I thought the more I, I thought about this fight afterwards was that it was a smart game plan for Brock Lesnar. It really took into account who he was and who he wasn't. Uh, more so maybe than he, at times he did during his active streak as UFC heavyweight champion because he, in the striking exchanges, he did a pretty good job of never standing there square with Mark Hunt for too long, not really getting sucked into any grappling exchanges. You know, pretty much whenever Mark Hunt would try to come with that right hand, Brock Lesnar's just like, let me just put my head down between my enormous shoulders and use all the mass that that surrounds me to deflect these blows and not really get into a punching exchange with him. And Mark Hunt, I think we've seen before at times in his pride career, had a hard time uh, with people who would not, engage with him even when they couldn't get him on the ground if you were if he can't get you to throw some punches back at him he sometimes has a hard time i can remember seeing some of those early pride fights where he would put his hands down just to get you to throw at him confident in his ability to take a shot and knowing that as soon as he gets you punching back at him that's when he has you and brock lesnar didn't really play that game with him and he picked his takedown moments pretty well he, he got mark hunt up against the fence and knew that he could take him down from there uh, wasn't trying to shoot at him too much in open space and yet did threaten with enough level changes to keep Mark Hunt wary of just coming forward and throwing bombs. Uh, kept Mark Hunt in a situation where he didn't want to throw more than one or two punches at a time because he was always worried about getting taken down. And then when he did take him down, you know, you're reminded in flashes that even when he just seems like he has a short space to throw a punch with those big ass ham hocks of his, Brock Lesnar can still hurt you. Yeah. Well, that was always, to me, the biggest advantage that Brock Lesnar had in MMA fights was that he was able to turn positions that against a normal human man would would not necessarily be that dangerous into potential fight ending situations. Like you remember back at UFC 100 when he turned Frank Mir's face into hamburger exactly. with those like short shots on the ground and, and kind of did the same thing to Mark Hunt here. You mentioned that it was a smart game plan, and I agree with you, and I would only provide the counterpoint that it was sort of the only game plan for Brock Lesnar, because, uh, you know, he, he's such a terrific athlete, and he's such a big guy, and he has such good... He knows he has such good wrestling skills in that he knows how to use his wrestling, his speed, his agility, uh, but he still looks so limited to me 
as a mixed martial arts fighter. And I guess we celebrate that in a guy like Damian Maya for having the sense to to go back to being a pure Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter. Damian Maya would choke the shit out of you right now if he heard you comparing him to Brock Lesnar as a limited fighter. But, but go on. I would say Brock Lesnar is the is the most limited fighter that we see that we, we have seen in a while in the modern UFC landscape. Because like you could make the point that Ronda Rousey was limited, but she looked more comfortable on her feet than Brock Lesnar does. He is out there hopping around, waving his hands around. I don't know how much of that is meant to distract Mark Hunt from what he's actually doing, but I mean, you're you're basically talking about a pure wrestler out there beating guys with his wrestling skills, which is uh remarkable that he's able to do that. <laughs> but it also it's still I have the same feeling that I had after he, he beat Shane Carwin, and that is somebody is going to come along and beat this guy soundly if he hangs around in the sport if he hangs around which brings us i think to the the next discussion topic here on brock lesnar which is what did we just watch uh did we just watch a hey just for the hell of it we need to add some pizzazz to ufc 200 and brock lesnar is not going to say no to 2.5 million dollars for one night's work or did we see brock lesnar get back in the cage get a win start to feel good enough about himself that he thinks you know what I like this feeling and I want to go back and do this some more. Yeah. And that remains to be seen. Clearly he doesn't have to do it. Clearly he, he, he loves the money, but I do believe at least part of his athlete ego needed for him to come back and erase the memory of those back-to-back losses to Cain Velasquez and Alistair Overeem. I think you could make the point that were he to come back in a more full-time capacity, he would enter a heavyweight division diminished to the point where perhaps he could be a contender uh, with based on his wrestling skills and almost nothing else. I mean, Cain Velasquez murders him tomorrow. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. But like you might not even have to fight Cain Velasquez if you were Brock Lesnar and you return to the octagon in a limited way, but in a in a more, uh, you know, a more uh, frequent sense, like you could probably pick and choose enough matchups to get in and out of this thing without putting yourself on the line against against uh, Cain Velasquez or the guy or that you, I feel like should be raising the ruckus trying to call out Brock Lesnar right now, and that is Daniel Cormier, who if I were look hanging around looking at the future of the light heavyweight division, I would be like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on the MMA Fortnite tomorrow with some prepared material about Brock Lesnar. Uh, if you, if you are Brock Lesnar and you do get in a situation where it looks like you might have to fight Cain Velasquez, for God's sake, see if you can't get that fight moved to Everest base camp. You don't want to fight sea level Cain. No, you don't. You want to fight as high level elevation Cain as you can pro- possibly get. That's right. You might not want to tell him where the fight is till like the day before too, <laughs> just in case he learned his lesson the first time. Well, I mean, the thing to me that I wondered afterwards is this storyline about like, Hey, he's haunted. He's haunted by the way his career ended the first time, and he never lost to a foe. It was diverticulitis. First of all, diverticulitis wasn't the one kicking you and, and hitting you upside your head. Like, give those people their credit. You might feel like you might have been diminished or you might have missed some time in your career because of it. But come on, man. Cain Velasquez hit you in the face and you, you got happy feet. That was not the diverticulitis talking right there. Um, but also, it just seemed to me like such a storyline from – a guy who works in a business where they're experts at storylines. Like, hey, why is he coming back to do this? Because he he can't live with it, man. He can't live with himself the way it ended before. And if that's true, 
then I don't know how you go in there and you win a unanimous decision by taking Mark Hunt down and laying on him for a little while and you think, all right, now I can rest. Demons exercised. (laughs) I don't know. I do buy that a little bit just because Brock Lesnar is a lifelong athlete and used to the competition, and I'm sure he is in some way haunted by those losses. On the other hand, I guess you could say Brock Lesnar has never stayed in a career for very long in his entire life. Nope. Uh, And so I don't know if he's haunted by his inability to make the Minnesota Vikings or if he's haunted by his first departure from WWE uh, or if it was just the UFC that he had to go back there and, uh, and, and exercise those demons with a kind of a tepid unanimous decision win over, over Mark Hunt. Uh, and yeah, man, the million dollar question is if we see Brock Lesnar again, and I think, you know, you have the same situation that you had in the past where a lot of guys are going to be lining up to fight him uh, and it would be interesting to see what his next choice of opponent is because, you know, you come back for kind of a one, one-off one fun fight against Mark Hunt, I think a lot of people are willing to ex- extend you the benefit of the doubt. If your next fight is against Baruto or somebody oh, or Fedor. Watch. Oh, God. Don't uh, let that happen. I think we're, there's going to be a little bit more criticism there. True. But if you're making $2.5 million a pop to do it, maybe you feel like you'll take a little bit of criticism. And I am critical of Brock Lesnar because I feel like he deserves it. But I guess I would also say, as I I believe I've said about him in the past, can you imagine if Brock Lesnar had been allowed to have the evolutionary experience of a normal MMA fighter? Like if he had come out of Minnesota as the NCAA college wrestling champion and instead of going to WWE had started training in MMA and trained seriously on his feet and was able to get five to 10 fights in the amateur, I'm not amateur, but small time independent ranks before he came to the UFC, assuming that he is not just one of these people that quits every time he gets punched in the face. I feel like you would be looking at a heretofore unseen monster in the, in the heavyweight division. True. But I also think it's worth noting that it's not like, the thing that kept him from having whatever you want to think of as a quality and normal and and fully uh, broad training camp was not that it was denied to him that he had to do it his way. Sure. No. Yeah, totally. I know. And, and I've always said that as well. In fact, I feel like the Brock Lesnar, Ronda Rousey comparisons are rich and layered. If you feel like getting into them uh, because they both choose to train close to home, surrounded by people that they're comfortable with, uh, maybe at the at the detriment of their actual skills. They're both blonde. They're both blonde. They do both they have both, winning attitudes. Do they both believe that all nationalities matter? Oh, boy. Do you want to talk? We got a couple minutes. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Number one, let's talk about how weird it is that Brock Lesnar in 2016 so oftentimes uh, identifies himself with his race. Yeah, Just seemingly a always as white boy though. It's yeah. never like like when you were like filling out a form like for jury duty or something, and he's skipping over the Caucasian bubble looking for white boy. That right. seems to be how he self identifies. It's like as he's, white boy. He's listening to a lot of Haystack or like early '90s underground rap kind of where people uh, frequently identify themselves <laughs> as crazy white boys. Uh, 
But I and other people have said this online, but I completely agree with it. And that is when he's in the cage and he says he begins his statement by saying from one white boy. You're like, oh, no, stop it. You could hear every uh, clear thinking MMA fan in the world being like, no, like a slow motion (laughs) scene of Dana White running toward the cage (laughs) and diving through the air to grab the microphone before Brock Lesnar can go on. And frankly... Brock Lesnar's surprising message of peace and understanding for all nationalities while poorly worded surprising. I thought it just, to me, it was like, what, what conversation are you having? Like, where did you even get all nationalities? Man, that's not even what we're talking about, man. Hashtag woke Brock Lesnar. (laughs) The most surprising part of UFC 200. Woke Brock Lesnar would be a pretty awesome meme. Somebody get on that. (laughs) Anyway, that's going to do it for round number three. We will be right back with round number four. Well, Chad, we'd be remiss if we did not discuss UFC 200's main event. Amanda Nunes goes out there against Misha Tate, who most people expect to just kind of run over her, uh, and shocks her. Early on in the fight, hurts her standing up with punches, just smashes the shit out of Misha Tate's nose. Misha Tate's nose standing there, changing all kinds of different colors in that fight. Uh, and then Nunes, while, while Tate is rocked, takes her back, locks on the, the rear naked choke basically as a neck crank on top of her jaw and forces Tate to tap. And what do you know? The UFC women's bantamweight title has changed hands yet again. Do you love this beautiful chaos that has followed the, the post Ronda Rousey era? Or is this the point when you wish somebody could hold it down for a little while? Ah, uh, well, Amanda Nunes beating Misha Tate is, is kind of the, the point that the women's bantamweight division becomes the new men's light heavyweight division post Chuck Liddell, uh, where everybody got to take the belt home for, for a couple months and take family photos with it before they passed it on to somebody else. Uh, and I guess the chaos is good. I mean, if, if anything, you, you just keep expanding the number of potential fights for your, uh, women's stars, Ronda Rousey, Holly Holm, Chris Cyborg, Misha Tate. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. I, I think that, you know, it's going to take a little bit more time, uh, for Amanda Nunez to, to elevate herself to the level of, of public recognition that some of those other women have enjoyed by being, you know, by accomplishing the things they have. Like for Holly Holm, just beating Ronda Rousey for starters puts you on the map. And for Misha Tate being Ronda Rousey's arch nemesis and the person that uh, crafts that amazing come from behind win over Holly Holm, I think makes you, uh, uh, you know, puts you on the map. And Misha Tate has long been the second most marketable star in that division. So for Amanda Nunes to totally get there, I think it's going to take a little bit more time. But I think this is a legitimate kind of feel good moment, both for women's 135 pounds and for Amanda Nunes herself. I mean, once you take the light heavyweight title off the card, you know, his history says the, the, uh, the highest weight actual championship should be the main event. So I thought that it was a, a good proper and like meaningful gesture for 
the women's bantamweight fight to end up being the main event of UFC 200. If, you know, even if Brock Lesnar was still kind of the biggest draw and the biggest star there, uh, just because the UFC is a company that has had so much trouble, uh, integrating women in, into the scene and kind of like talking about them in a way that doesn't either seem exploitive or patronizing that like, it's kind of good for them to have the biggest show of the year. And what, what potentially could have been the biggest show in the history of the sport. I don't think it lived up to that pre-fight hype, but like to have the women's bantamweight division headline that was totally good as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, uh, you know, if you're talking about which fight delivered more in terms of excitement value, this or uh, Brock Lesnar's, and and also in terms of feeling like it was significant and that it had more meaning, I think you have to side on both counts with uh, the women's bantamweight title fight. Uh, how about the fact that Amanda Nunes is now the first openly gay UFC champion? A fact not really mentioned at all on the broadcast uh, and... Even in the the days afterwards, you know, mentioned kind of as, oh yes, the this is this is a thing that's happening. Not really a huge deal being made about that, right? Yeah, widely mentioned on social media uh, immediately afterward, and it is kind of historic for for uh, Amanda Nunes to become the first openly gay UFC champion. And it happened the week that the UFC unveiled that uh, rainbow. We are all fighters. Uh, equality T-shirt, which it it pointed out via official press release, was meant to promote. Uh, unity. Uh, so, it, you know, maybe they just, it's possible that they didn't expect Amanda Nunes to win and therefore possible. kind of shied away from what could have been considered sort of a hot button topic. Uh, didn't know how to handle it on the fly. I mean, I think sometimes you see in the UFC when stuff doesn't go quite as anticipated, uh, you know, they're super good given a couple of days at totally revamping a fight card and having their production crew stay there probably for 48 hours straight so they can get everything done but like during a live broadcast when stuff gets a little weird as it did frankly after the Joanna Jacek Claudia Gadella fight where it seemed like Claudia Gadella was going to have a moment of reconciliation on the mic and then maybe didn't like oftentimes they don't handle that they don't they don't meet it head on let's just say that and so maybe Amanda Nunes's surprise victory over Misha Tate uh kind of did an end around uh, uh, you know around what the UFC was planning and so it didn't it didn't highlight that about her but i would say like if we don't i they, i bet that they will do that at some point it seems like the kind of thing that that they will celebrate given that, that that it seems like they're making a conscious decision to turn toward uh acceptance and and you know evolution well i think historically when it term in terms of like how the company actually deals with that stuff I think the UFC has been really good as long as you can ignore individual fighters using gay slurs or right. even the UFC president at one point using a gay slur. Um, but then, you know, that was one of Dana White's better apologies, uh, at least in the sense that he really seemed to appreciate what he had done wrong there and atone for that while also then going out of his way to be like, but when I called uh, Loretta Hunt uh, a bunch of like misogynistic slurs, I absolutely meant those and I want to stand by them. Like that, that was weird. But like even when, uh, when Liz Carmouche uh, fought Ronda Rousey in the UFC's first uh, women's bantamweight uh, title fight, and they acknowledged like, yeah, it's, it's historic also because it's the first like openly gay fighter competing in the UFC, but they didn't do it in a way that felt at all exploitative. It was just like, well, we're going to do the, 
you know, follow this person around at their home life kind of hype package videos like we always do. And so, yeah, you're going to see her girlfriend in there, but we're not going to make a huge deal out of that. And I think Liz Carmouche's story was even a little more interesting because as a former Marine uh, who had been in the Marines during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, you know, like she had uh, a lot of complicated stuff that she had dealt with just getting to that point. So, but I don't think the UFC has ever been really bad about that stuff. I think it's one of the better things they do is deal with issues like that. I really believe them when they say, you know, hey, look, we are totally supportive of gay fighters, gay fans, uh, and yet not trying to use it as just leverage to to make another buck in, in another different way. Uh, so I think that they handled this one pretty well. And I think everybody – so far, I've been pleased with how MMA in general has handled this one. Uh, and yet I also – you know, you can't help but wonder – is it because just sports fans in general are so much more used to and comfortable with the idea of the lesbian pro athlete? Because if it was a dude, if it was a the first openly gay male champion, I think it would it would go down very differently. Yeah, my unscientific survey of the mixed martial arts landscape leads me to to agree with you that people would have a more difficult time accepting a gay uh, male champion than than a, a female. Uh, gay champion you know when they when they first shuffled this card and put Misha Tate Amanda Nunes on top I think it was widely assumed that what they wanted was an in-cage confrontation between Misha Tate and Ronda Rousey uh, and when the fight went in a way that they didn't expect it to go uh, you know, we got into a situation, situation where now we'll, we might never know what was going to happen. What is the, the way forward here for the women's bantamweight division? Uh, Holly Holm fights Valentina Shevchenko, um, I believe next week on the 23rd or in, you know, 10 days or so from now. And you would got, you got to think that a win there might put her in the driver's seat, but we are all still kind of just waiting around, right? To see, uh, to see where both Ronda Rousey's physical body is at and where her mental state is at. Yeah, and I think it's also, like, you know when Ronda Rousey is ready and says, hey, I'm ready, and the UFC is ready to bring her back, she's going right toward the title. And I would have to think that despite Amanda Nunes' win here, uh, I would think that Ronda Rousey and the UFC in general would feel pretty good about putting her back in for her first fight with Amanda Nunes rather than putting her in against somebody like Holly Holm. If you wait around, you'll let Holly Holm have a shot at the title. Uh, and then maybe you put Ronda Rousey after this time off where she's been dealing with a lot of other, other stuff right back into a fight with somebody who absolutely demolished her. Then you might start thinking, are we setting her up for total disaster here? And for the kind of fight that will just send her packing for good saying, Forget it. See ya. I don't, I want to be eating apples regularly and not dealing with this shit. I don't need it anymore. Whereas if she comes back against somebody like Nunes, who is shown to kind of fade and, and probably could be thrown on her head and true Ronda Rousey style and maybe arm barred, maybe you feel a little bit good about easing her back in or something like that. But again, it seems like whatever you say about the UFC women's bantamweight division right now, wait three months and it'll be a completely different picture. Yeah, that's that's kind of the thing. Uh, I agree with you about Ronda Rousey, although it seemed, you know, early on after her loss to Holly Holm, it sure, sure seemed like the UFC was gung-ho to try her to throw her back in there with Holly Holm immediately. So, you know, if, if Holm beats Shevchenko later this month, I, I wouldn't be that surprised to see them set up 
uh, a, a match between Amanda Nunes and Holly Holm in the hopes that Holly Holm would win. And then you kind of just pushed the reset button <laughs> on the last year or so of the women's bantamweight division. And you might be right back to the Ronda Rousey, Holly Holm rematch that you wanted to have in the first place. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add here or, or are you, you good? Last thing I would say is kind of heartbreaking to see Misha Tate show up with a giant ice pack on her nose, still trying to, to talk and, uh, be a classy in defeat kind of ex champion. Uh, man, I would not have blamed you if you skipped out on that one. I give you respect for showing up and doing that one, but Jesus, when you have to have a, a ice pack pressed to your nose the entire time, man, if your if your nose will not stop bleeding, I think we'd understand if you wanted to stay backstage and and lick your wounds a little bit. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot to like about Misha Tate from that standpoint. She seems like a consummate professional, like the kind of person that really prides herself on on being able to fulfill all of the requirements. And, and heartbreaking also because she'd waited so long to be champion. And because of that professionalism, I, feel, I think like she really stepped into that role as champion, ready to take the ball and run with it. Uh, and to see that like snatched away from her so quickly has got to you got to think that that would be. Uh, tough for her to deal with. But at the same time, again, back to the kind of Misha Tate attitude, professionalism, she said it in the cage after it was over, she'll be back. And, and I totally believe her about that. It would be hard for me to imagine her, uh, not being back, which I guess puts her at odds with her arch nemesis, uh, in the protracted feud that they've had, who in the, in the wake of one loss kind of had to take an extended absence to, to get herself back together. Last thing. Uh, what do you say the chances are we see Misha Tate and Ronda Rousey fight again? Ooh, that's Somewhere a good, down that's the line. a good question, man. Cause if Ronda does come back, you'd think that they would throw her straight into a title fight. And if she wins that, you know, conventional wisdom, I think would say Misha Tate is locked out of that title picture for a little while, considering, uh, you know, her, her previous title fight losses and how she lost this one, but there's going to be money there. There is. Cash rules everything around us. Especially if Misha Tate can win a fight here or there between now and then. I say not bad odds that that fight happens again. You might be right. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number four. Jesus Christ. There's one more of these? We'll be right back with round number five. Well, Ben, if the question about Jose Aldo coming into this fight against Frankie Edgar was how he would return in the wake of that shocking 13-second knockout loss to Conor McGregor at UFC 194 in December of 2015, we got our answer during this fight. And the answer was, still looks pretty goddamn good. And I think looks... Like the Jose Aldo of old, at least the UFC champion version of Jose Aldo, as he ends up winning a competitive but fairly clear-cut unanimous decision over Frankie Edgar. I know you were impressed, among other things, with Jose Aldo's takedown defense, uh, and I wanted you to, to give you the opportunity to spaz out about that right now. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, it was great takedown defense, and it was also not just good takedown defense in the way he has shown in the past where... 
when he's been taken down, one of the great things that he has is that hip movement where as soon as, if even if you get him down, as soon as you get his butt to hit the mat, boom, he's popping right back up. He's shifting his hips, and he's never really letting, letting you settle on top of him and start to set up any kind of like controlling ground game. He's been great at that. This one, however, he was really great at timing Frankie Edgar's attempts at a takedown, and he would throw that knee up at him and more often than not catch him with that knee. And then in the immediate aftermath where Frankie Edgar's feeling that that knee a little bit would just kind of throw him off whizzer him off shove him off kind of just big brother move kind of stuff where every single time frank Edgar reaches for a takedown it's just like boom knee then shove get off me don't do that again and it, it really really worked in this fight it made frank Edgar think twice about every single takedown attempt that he wanted i don't think he got a single one and made him feel like every single time you feel like that's something you want to do you're going to pay for it even if you're successful, you're going to end up paying for it. Uh, and I think that that had a great impact on this fight. But then it's not the only thing he did well. I think he was just, he had a, a great sense of the range in this one. He didn't get crazy going after Frankie Edgar. And yet with Frankie Edgar with step in jabbing range, he was just throwing that out there. And you saw for, by the time it was, you know, between third or fourth round, Frankie Edgar's going back to his corner and his cut man is using both hands and can't get it all Ooh, because yeah, he's that's just not a good sign. No. Uh, and you know, that just seems like kind of the old Jose Aldo patient taking you apart, doing damage, hurting you, uh, and never totally freaking out in order to go for the finish. Yeah. I saw on Twitter, someone threw out the stat, uh, unverified by me, obviously, but I'm just going to use it as though it's fact that Jose Aldo or that, that. Frankie Edgar and Chad Mendez went a combined three for 37 on takedown attempts over their four fights against Jose Aldo, which against the two of the better wrestlers in that division is pretty remarkable. And it does, it did seem like, you know, for all of our hand wringing over how he would return from that knockout loss to Conor McGregor, it did seem like Jose Aldo definitely took it in a way where you can imagine him being like, okay, well, I'm fucking Jose Aldo. And so I'm going to get back to what I do and how I do it. And I'm going to come back better than ever and, and make all of these people eat their own teeth, which, uh, you know, frankly is the Jose Aldo that I expected against Conor McGregor the first time we saw him, uh, not the Jose Aldo that, that fell over like someone had pushed over a stack of bricks. Right. Uh, the pretty awesome photograph. I can't remember who took it of Conor McGregor watching the action. I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah. Uh, looking every bit like he has every intention of coming back to featherweight to fight one of those two dudes. I know that I've been skeptical of that in the past, and I think conventional wisdom says so long that he, as he's able to compete at those higher weight classes and the money is is better for him there, he will stay at lightweight and or weather or welterweight uh, and continue to fight there. But I think, you know, we also need to concede that Conor McGregor has been pretty good to his word about most things since coming to the UFC in 2013. So are you anticipating a possibility that he might, out of sheer Conor McGregor-ness, be dead set on going back to 145 and, and defending the gold? You know, when I saw those pictures, and there was pictures from two different angles. You see the one from the front and one from the back where it's just like, Jose Aldo and Frankie Edgar are fighting and Conor McGregor is watching. Uh, and it's awesome. It's like a great, you know, visual moment that stands out from that event. And yet at the same time, a part of me is like, are we being played here? Like, is everybody just, just fucking with us and stringing us along? 
I think just so much depends on what happens when Conor McGregor rematches money weight Nate Diaz. I think that that's going to help determine I don't know what what his options are going forward. And if I am Jose Aldo, I'm calling up Nate Diaz and I'm saying, "Buddy, is there anything you need? <laughs> is there anything can I how can I help you? Yeah. Do you need do you need me to send you some training partners? Uh I got a masseuse on staff uh to come Wait pamper your shit Are out you saying that jose aldo is gonna is gonna call up and offer to pamper nate diaz's shit let out me every hour on the hour your shit out every hour on the hour nate because i want you to be a hundred percent going in there and let's get it done buddy let's get it done nate diaz mumbles in times of war he would not even be alive i would own all his shit <laughs> times of war in times of war where two men are stripped to the waist and put in a cage it's interesting that you say that about jose aldo calling up Nate Diaz and uh, offering to help him out with anything that he needs. Pamper his shit out. Because if a rematch between Jose Aldo and Conor McGregor were ever to go down, you know who I think would unexpectedly find himself as the biggest Conor McGregor supporter in the land? And that would be the old man, Frankie Edgar. <laughs> because at this point, with two losses to Jose Aldo at 145 pounds and at 34 years of age, it's it's kind of tough to plot a way forward for Frankie Edgar uh, in any way that seems uh, acceptable to him, except Conor McGregor coming back and retaining his title, which might hit the reset button enough that, that a match between Conor McGregor and Frankie Edgar would make sense if Edgar were able to pick up a couple more wins. Yeah, that's possible. I think, though, you know, we talk about him not wanting to make that weight, Conor McGregor not wanting to go down to featherweight, and I guess it's still hard for me to get a sense of, are we talking about would rather not, or are we talking about no, can't do it? Uh, that's going to make a big difference because I think if you go out there and you beat Nate Diaz in the rematch, well then, hey, you know, the money faucet is back on, uh, as Conor McGregor and you can kind of call your shots after that. You can kind of get on the mic right after that and say, did I just hear that man, Eddie Alvarez talking some shit about me? Let me hold on, Eddie. I'm coming. You know, you can do whatever you want at, at that point if you're Conor McGregor. But if you go out there and you get beat by Nate Diaz again, if you're 0-2 to money weight Nate Diaz, then – and you're still walking around with a featherweight title. And at that point, the UFC is going to be telling you, we got to do something about this. Uh, you got to make a decision here. It's going to be hard for you to say, all right, all right, all right. I got beat by the lightweight at welterweight, but now I want to challenge for the lightweight belt. People are not really going to go for that. Everybody's going to be able to look at that and be like, you just lost to a guy who is not, who is a lightweight and not even the top lightweight. Uh, that would kind of, I think, force him to really do a gut check and decide, can I still make featherweight? Is it really that bad? Can I just miss, can I just go from three breakfasts to one? And, you know, can I, can I maybe cut out a few of the steaks and we're right back where we started? Maybe walk instead of taking the Ferrari. Who knows? There you go. Uh, well, John Kavanaugh certainly seemed to indicate that it's that it's more of a can't do it type situation. John but Kavanaugh also indicated that Conor McGregor would be asking for a share of this four billion dollars, <laughs> right? So how's that going? Yeah, sometimes I think uh, the gift of gab from the, the folks over there in the fictional country of Ireland. Who knows? Some raconteurs over there. <laughs> but you, yeah, you got to think that no matter how the Nate Diaz fight goes down, that a decision about the 145 pound gold would have to be in the offing, right? Like if your only concern is, is the finances, I would think that you might want to let Conor McGregor hang on to the belt if his next fight is going to be against Eddie Alvarez, because then you can bring 
both belts to the press conference like you didn't do the first time against Dos Anjos. Uh, but above and beyond that, like you, you, you got so many shows and so many pay-per-views, you need a featherweight champion because you're going to need him to fight people so you can bring the belt to the press conference. <laughs> yes. Anyway, yes. uh, do you want to talk Frankie Edgar at all? A couple minutes left. I don't know. We just said, I don't know where he goes from here. It kind of would feel sad to me for Frankie Edgar to try to make 135. No, please don't. But at the same time, like his buddy is the champion at 155 now. Uh, and he has lost twice to the now interim featherweight champion. I just, I don't know what, what the guy does at this point. Uh, I mean, he can hang out and fight featherweights all, all day, I guess. And beat most of them. And beat most of them. Anyway, that, that is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We're going to do just saying stuff. Oh, Jesus. I'm a mess over here. <laughs> Fatigue makes a different man out of you. Yeah. As you can see. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, we'll close out with just saying stuff. Don't worry, little buddy. We're going to do that. <laughs> What's your just saying stuff this week, Ben? Well, Chad, I'm just saying. I know we mentioned earlier in the show Donald Cerrone having a couple few soda pops thrown out there, a gay slur, casual shade being thrown at Daniel Cormier as it was mentioned in the listener mail. I'm just saying that whenever something like this happens, and whenever those of us who are in the MMA media or even just regular citizens – point out that we think that kind of thing is not cool. The same thing always happens, which is a lot of people are going to jump on Twitter and complain about the PC police being way too sensitive. You guys are so sensitive. Why are you crying about it? It's so sensitive. I'm just saying, maybe it's the people who can't stand to have anybody say anything about other things people have said who are themselves a little too sensitive. I'm just saying. Don't censor me, bro. Just saying. Censorship, I guess, is when somebody says that you shouldn't say something, but when you're the one telling other people that they shouldn't say anything about what you're saying, then I guess you're just an American hero. Huh. Just saying. It's a lot of layers to what you just said you'll there. You'll think about I'm it later. Gonna... You'll get it. You'll sit up straight up in bed tonight. You'll be like, oh, God. I'm going to have to he, untangle that He later. was right. Can't wait to unpack that. This week, Ben, I guess I'm just saying that in retrospect... That yellow canvas turned out to be kind of a harbinger of bad things, right? Huh. It kind of seemed like the perfect symbol for UFC 200 in a lot of ways, uh, in that it was an idea that probably sounded super cool in theory to have a special colored canvas to mark this landmark UFC event. But in practice, as I've seen other people mention on, on social media, it kind of just made UFC 200 look like the, the highest profile king of the cage event in history. <laughs> uh, it was just weird, man, and distracting. And I hope they don't end up doing that from now on. But I mean, I guess on the bright side, there are three or four colors of Reebok fight kits available now, too. So maybe we're all good. Hook me up with that basil green, son. I'm just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. If you have questions, comments, concerns to air to the to the podcast in future weeks, I don't have to say that at the end. I already said that before. We are never doing five rounds again. It's awful. It's we'll just be, been terrible. We'll be back next week. I'll probably be road-weary and jet-lagged, and we'll, we'll figure out something. That Sioux Falls thing is happening, right? That's yeah. This weekend? That's Wednesday. Oh, shit. Really? That's right. Good Lord. All right. Well, we're done. We're through. We're out. You okay? I don't know, man. I feel like uh, I need some estrogen blockers or something over here. This, I, through this. I just hope this doesn't affect your book tour and or your ability to keep talking about how your book is coming out. Once, once, it, once it's out, though.